0: wrong. 2021 Howard Day's Recording, When Conan Went Public. This recording is from Friday, June 11th, and is from the Robert E. Howard Celebration Banquet. The guest of honor is Roy Thomas, who shares comments and stories about his time at Marvel Comics
1: adapting Robert E. Howard's Conan. Rusty Burke provides the introductory remarks. This right here was the emphasis for us being here tonight. This very comic was my introduction to Conan the Barbarian. Through this comic, then to the work of Robert E. Howard. My college classmate Charlie Williams, really outstanding cartoonist. I'm sitting in a class with him, and seeing drawing cartoons instead of taking notes. And uh, I said, we were talking about comics. And I said, oh, I gave my comics, baseball cards, and other kid stuff to my little brother when I when they went to Atlanta. And he came into our next class session and he plopped this onto my desk and he said, read that and tell me it's kid stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the opening scene, you start out above the thieves' quarter and you slowly descend through the panels and you turn the page and you're in the tavern. It caught me captured me, and I've been with it ever since, was hooked. Soon I was immersing myself in Conan paperbacks and then anything else I could find about Howard. The Conan comic inspired a teenager named Tim Marion to start the Robert E. Howard United Press Association, an amateur press group, in 1972. I joined him in 1980. Six years later, I convinced nine other members to come down here and join me on a trip to Cross Plains. Friendships that we developed here with members of Project Pride and Friends of the Library have uh, led to the organization's purchase of the Howard House, the creation of Robert E. Howard Days, and here we are in a direct line from that fatal day in spring of 1971 in Religious Studies 3030. Roy Thomas was, of course, the writer of this comic, and the driving force behind Marvel's introduction to this comic book, Conan the Barbarian in 1970, and for 10 years and 115 issues, in collaboration with artists such as Barry windsor Smith, Gil Kane, John Visima, and others, he set the standard for the depiction of the Howard Sumerian hero in a visual medium. The award-winning comics, spawned many others, and through such magazines as Savage Tales, Savage Sword of Conan, Colin the Barbarians, Paul the Conqueror, and many others, Lloyd introduced thousands of new readers to Conan and to Howard's other characters and stories, including King Cole, Solomon Kane, Grant McHorn, and various of the horror tales. In addition, his constant reminders to his readers that these stories were based on the work of Robert E. Howard, and his addition of nonfiction articles about Howard and his work by eminences such as Fred Blosser, helped introduce them to their originals and contributed to the growth of Howard Fandom and the Howard Boom of the 1970s. Boy's involvement with Conan and Robert E. Howard continues to the present day, television screenwriting credits, comics, and books such as his Barbarian Life series, chronicling the stories behind the Conan comics issue by issue. Boy's career has been far more than just Conan, of course. He's worked not only for Marvel, but for DC, Charlton, Cross Plains, Comics, Star Force, Dynamite, Burst, Heroic Publishing, Tops. He has created or co-created characters you might recognize or have heard of, like Wolverine, Vision, Carol Danvers, or Ms. Marvel or Captain Marvel, Iron Fist, Ultron, The Defenders, the Man-Thing, a host of others including a flame tressed sword woman by the name of Red Sonia, originally based on Howard's 16th century Sonia with a Y. Royce won far too many awards for us to run down here. They include three Shazam Awards and six Good to, I've tried to pronounce that correctly, Comic Art Fan Awards. Induction in 2011 into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame, and in 2006, induction into the prestigious Black Circle of the Robert Howard Foundation. Finally, let me note that Roy is not only a legendary comic book professional, he is also a legendary fan. He edited four issues of the comics fan magazine Alter Ego in the 1960s before going to work for Marvel. Then he took on the editorship again when the magazine was revived in 1998 and is still going strong with volume three, number 170 due out soon. We are delighted to have as our guest of honor in this special year, the man who helped launch Robert E. Howard into popular media and onto worldwide fame, probably did not imagine back in 1970, that we would be here tonight welcoming him to Robert E. Howard's hometown. Roy Thomas.
0: Me or the comics and such, it's, uh, you know, it's Robert E. Howard, who's the founder of all, of all of this uh, kind of material. Uh, it was my privilege, my good luck. A little bit of, you know, smarts too, I'm to, you not know, gonna put myself down entirely, but really it was a lot of luck involved of um, getting the, uh, the rights to be And then, uh, At the time, no, I didn't think anything about it. Now, how many of you were at the thing this afternoon? Okay. well. I said a little of this before, I tried to avoid saying it too much. So I said, I, I don't give speeches, but I said, you know, one thing I can talk about forever because I've had to tell the story so many times because it's kind of weird is uh, the how, what they titled it when Coden went public, because it's sort of how Marvel got into the game. Because pretty much, I would suspect almost everybody here knows what had happened before that. I mean, they know that in the 30s, Howard got this idea, you know, and so the weird tales. How after he uh, died so you know, tragically young, uh, the character kind of, you know, was kind of lost for a few years. And then uh, a guy named Marty Greenberg started publishing publish hardcover, uh, for with his Gnome Press and so forth. And then, it, and then somewhere along the line, uh, and for, you know whatever you would think of, in elsewhere uh, in the camp got himself attached to it, you know, in, in good ways and bad, perhaps. But uh, and but he did lead to there being uh, this or series of paperbacks that came out in 1966. And some, and they were going to have a, and the, one of the best lucky strokes along with, uh, you know, whatever contacts the camp made, at just the right time, when there had been, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs was selling, Doc Savage was selling, Tolkien, was out of paperback for the first time. Um, but just about at that same time, um, publishers, you know, they needed a couple for the book. And they, they went to the guy they thought would be, you know, perfect for them because he wrote a lot of stuff in that material. A guy, a wonderful artist named Roy Franklin, right? Well, you, you know his work, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, but he said, you know, I've done a lot of code stuff, but there's somebody else that should really do this. Uh, you know, so he didn't feel like up to it or quite rising. So he said, "There's this guy, you know. He's been doing covers of Tarzan and other Burroughs books and a few other things here and there. His name is Frank Frazetta, and uh, yeah, Frank. Right, uh, and somehow, uh, uh, Frank had been doing great work on uh, the Tarzan covers. Of the somehow, the combination of came together of his cover, especially that very first image." And the material inside, and people started to read it, you know, uh, just to set things off. Later on, you know, Conan could keep going, and Robert E. Howard could keep going, and it didn't necessarily be presented anymore. And presented, in the Howard to keep going in his own direction. But at the time, it was a, a perfect marriage. And I don't, I don't think any other artist ever in comics or in any other field on the screen or anywhere else ever caught the image of, uh, of what Conan should be and what we all think of as Conan any better than, and maybe not as well as. Uh, presented, um, so where the comics came in, I hadn't read that stuff. You know, I you know I I, I wasn't a fan of that kind of stuff. Uh, I think I bought the book for the cover, and it said on the back. Uh, that's 1966. I was uh, 25, working for Marvel Comics for about a year, and I bought the book. And I, said, and I it said on the back something about Atlantis. So I thought it's sort of in the vein of like you know the John Carter and Mars stuff or one of the Burroughs things. And i bought all that stuff at the time i didn't even remember that i bought a couple of years earlier howmurian which was the first robert howard paperback and i never read that either Even you know. i just knew it was a copy of john carter and, Martin. and so and i read a few pages of it and it was just this guy who throws this princess over his shoulder and you know and so forth and, and uh, some wizard kills his men and it was good the prose was all right but it just didn't grab exactly. I mean, it wasn't what I was looking for. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I just set it on the shelf. Never touched it again for two or three years. But in the meantime, the other paperbacks would come out and, I, you know, they had these wonderful, the first few had the wonderful Rosetta covers. Well, I'll keep filing for those. Maybe sometime I'll actually read this stuff. And uh, the first thing I ever read actually, which also had a Rosetta cover, which I only read oil Iowa for a few years, uh, was. Uh, An imitation half John Carter and half Conan, called uh, Thongor by Lynn Carter. It was Thongor and the City of Magicians. It was behind this wonderful Rosetta cover of a Conan like, you were riding a pterodactyl while the Sea of Lava is the black background. Just wonderful, one of my favorite uh, Rosetta images. And uh, so, you know, but people were writing into Marvel and saying, uh, you know, you should should get one of these characters. They didn't necessarily. Some said Conan, some just said, and they didn't tell us to make up one. It was more like telling us to get the rights to one of the characters from the, the books. Because otherwise, Marvel usually made of its own characters. And I don't know why we didn't do it again. I'm glad we didn't. But uh, we could not have done anything as well as the original. And uh, so we went, at, we were smart boy. We went, first thing we did is I told Stan, well, you know, there's Somdor, and there's Conan, and there's another character by this time that we the back and come out with the Kregel cover called and Stan said, well, you know, the name I like best for comics is Fondor. <laughs> Fondor sounds like a comic book character. And the second one was Call, And the third was Conan because, you know, a C doesn't look as good as, like, a K. And I start K. You know? So, but anyway, for that and the fact that I had actually read the Fondor book before I read it, uh, all, Eddie Conan all the way through it. So we went after Fondor, you know. Actually, I had to write a memo first to the publisher to tell him why we should do this book. So I write a two or three page memo to our publisher, who I didn't know and speak to ever, telling us why we should do a sword and sorcery book and license one of these characters. Not why we should just do a book, but why we should just license the character. So I wrote this memo and said, well, it's got strong heroes like our heroes, it's got Good-looking women mostly dressed for tropical climates. Very,
1: uh,
0: as it's got you know monsters and wizards. I, I just slid over the fact that it looked like it took place in you know, 1066 or something like that, you know, because I thought that would not necessarily appeal to the publisher. So he authorized me to offer uh, a total, uh, without any royalty at any time, of uh, $150 per issue, which is a lot more money in 1970 or sixty nine seventy that it was in used today, but it still wasn't in handsome. So I, so okay. So I, uh, I talked to Lynn Carter, and he loved comics. He, he thought that would be just fun. Uh, but he had an agent who was a businessman, of course. His business said at one hundred and fifty dollars an issue for this thing. They're going to maybe sell several hundred thousand copies, and whatever. So he kept stalling for time. He kept waiting. He kept waiting, somehow thinking that Marvel was gonna up his offer. I couldn't totally, this this publisher, is never agreed to up his offer one dime, you know. So I just waited, got more frustrated. And finally, while I was waiting and getting frustrated, Stan would say, is there any progress? And no, I haven't heard from the agent, you know, and so forth. And uh, one night, I had to go down and uh, somewhere, I think, post office to try drop off something. And I stopped off at a store, and there was the latest Conan book, I guess this was 69. It was the Conan of Samaria book that has the Frost Giant cover, beautiful cover. And for the first time, I'd read some of the stories by this time and, and really liked it, but I felt Codan was probably out of our league. This is the, you know, this is the big character. It's selling very well. We to really take her back so that we're not going to be able to get that for 150 bucks a day. So better be able we get Fondo. And uh, when I saw this, and for the first time that I can remember, I read the L-Strekney camp. So, so L-Strekney camp didn't like the comic later. He had opened himself to play it. He said, uh, "He said at the, at the right at the end. He says, you know, that he mentions this guy named Glenn Moore, who is the uh, literary agent for the Robert E. Howard estate. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm working for a publishing company, even as comics. I don't need a house to to me to tell me that uh, the, if you know if somebody is listed as the agent for the estate, maybe that's the guy to contact and see if we can get the rights instead of going to the Illustrated camp record. I'd heard enough about it to know that probably is wasn't really to work, And uh, so I just dropped a little. you know, we didn't have uh, phones too expensive in those days, no other way to do it, so I just dropped him a letter two days later. About a week later, the answer comes back, but I'm so embarrassed when I wrote this letter. $150 just stuck in my cross, and was so Ill. So I upped it to 200, you know, on my own, 33 to 30% increase, just because I was so embarrassed at the 150, so he accepts. And I said, okay, send a contract. You can't use any Cohen stories that, you know, but you can do, you can use uh, power. You can't adapt anything, but you can use the character. And I said, oh, so we made okay, and the lawyers took care of this fairly simple contract, which I, you know, didn't have much to do with it. And then, and then I got to hand it off to somebody else, my young friend Jerry Conway, or somebody else to write, because I was, you know, busy writing The Avengers, The Hulk, or, you know, other things like that. And then I thought, what am I going to do if that our publisher, who was notoriously cheap, uh, remembered, as he probably would and did, that I had offered more money, and he's going to take that fifty bucks out of my hide? So the only way I can get him to do anything with it was to decide I'll write the first issue or so instead of giving it off to someone else. I'll write the first issue or so so that. If he remembers it, I could just not get paid for one or two issues, that will come out even, you know. I, I probably would have had to go without being paid for two or three pages and my paid at that time in order to make up the 50 bucks. But, so I did. And uh, so then it was fine. We had, we had just the right person. We, we, everything's going along okay. And we, we had, I started working on a plot, an original story. We, that, we didn't ever have formal rights at that time to do a particular story. I raised that a little later kind of personal way with the land, And I uh, worked on the story and we had, our, we had our ideal artist. His name was John Vassil, you know, who was gonna be the Conan artist. And John had never heard of Conan, but when I sent him one or two of the paperbacks, he said, I've been wanting to write, do this kind of stuff all my life. This is the kind of thing I want to do. I don't like these superheroes anyway. And since John was one of the best drafts in ever history comics, if you're, if you're familiar with his work, uh, that, that was just wonderful. And then reality struck in. The publisher woke up and at this of, what's this, $200 a year, you know? He says, and he says, uh, you know, that's, that's so much money. He says, we, we gotta get that money back. So he says, you, you can't have a top-rate artist, you know, maybe it's $40, $50 a page for pencils, whatever the rate was at the time. I'm not sure. And he says, you gotta get a cheap artist to do this book because uh, I gotta get my money back, you know, for, you know, for the license. So that ruled out, not only John uh, the but also my, my uh, new friend, another fine comic artist, Bill Kane, who had heard of Robert e. Howard probably before I was born, and, and so forth, and who really wanted to, to do coding, he'd been trying to arrange for it at one time. And he was ruled out, because his rate was too high. I rejected a couple of people's fan suggested, because I just felt they weren't, they were good artists, but I thought, no, they're not good. So well, then you gotta find somebody and good, fast, or, or, they're, or they're gonna do it. So I got busy and I thought, well, there's this bratty kid about 20 21 years old, who, uh, Barry Smith, over in the east side of, east end of uh, London, who had been, had come over here, done a little work for Marvel. They discovered he didn't have a little thing called a green card or anything like that. He shouldn't have been working these days. They gave him 24 hours to get back to London or be thrown in jail. And we been had him do work long distance, and I had done a little story of a kind of a Conan-esque Character, one little seven page story about a character I call Star and Slayer, and it worked out okay. So I said, Well, you know, I don't want to use these other guys because they're not special <laughs> enough. Barry's kind of crude, but he's got a lot of energy, and, and I've seen him draw stuff like this. He can kind of do it's so like, I got him on the phone, we sent him that plot, and he drew it, and, you know, and the rest is kind of, you know, kind of uh, history. Uh, and, uh, um, Eventually, by the time Barry left well, a couple of years later, it was selling well enough that you could get John DeSimone to come in and be the artist. And it actually, as great as Barry's stuff was, it sold just as well under Gil Cade and even better under DeSimone by 75, 76, it's become one of Marvel's best-selling comics. When they did those medallions, they did some kind of medallions for some outside opera. The three characters they wanted to do that Marvel could give the rights to uh, were Spider-Man, Hulk. Coden, rather than, say, the Fantastic Four or somebody else. And, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to see that. So uh, so I worked those 10 years of Coden, and uh, eventually I worked out some special deals with Glenn, Like I just wanted to try to, you know, do those original Coden stories, especially, you know, and so forth. So I worked out a deal with Glenn, and somehow, I don't know why, because it was selling for a couple of issues or something before it dipped and then came up again, uh, I got some, some sort of deal so that I didn't have pay myself, you know, to uh, pay the extra money, you know, 50, bucks, whatever it was, to adapt. Uh, you know, stories like uh, Tower of the Elephant, which is the first one we adapted, and then we adapted another story, uh, that was the, uh, what was it called, it had several different titles. Uh, the Grey God Passes was the one title, to turn a non conan story into a Conan story, the way the camp had been doing in other things. We ended up publishing that one first, but Tower of the Elephant was done first. And it was really entirely all of I can still remember the night uh, I think I got home from somewhere, on my first private that I, and I this thing package had come in from England. And I opened it up, and, and here is this beautiful pencil work telling the story just as he you know, I worked it out. And I didn't give him, it, it's a story he read, plus I gave him a written plot on top of it. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing that you described, And I think I changed the order of two panels about how he was coding. I cut them out. And, repaste it, but otherwise, you know, it's just perfect. And uh, that was my favorite Conan story then and now. I think I adapted it twice in the comics, once in the comic strip and once for a, an old time radio style uh, records. So <laughs> I got, got a lot of mileage out of Tower of the Elephant, And that's sort of how Conan, you know, went public. And uh, But, you know, it, it led to the movies and led to well, a lot of other things. But of course, the root, the root of all of it is Robert E. Howard, who, uh, who did really create a character that I was just too stupid to recognize in those first few pages. <laughs> you know, didn't, I just didn't realize how good that stuff, you know, really was. Maybe it did a different story, I don't know. Maybe it had been Tower of the Elephant, I might have got into it sooner because I had more sources and stuff, that I think I might have got to it sooner. But I made up for, you know, uh, for lost time. And, uh, I was good for Cohen. Cohen was certainly good for me and for Marvel Comics. And, you know, and, and I did, even though we didn't have to by contract, I did always add Robert E. Howard's name into um, the story because I wanted to leave people to read the original stories too. Nobody was asking this. I just thought it would be a good idea to do it. I thought people should. when we got the Black and White magazine, I was able to hire a uh, like Fred Blosser had written some stuff for Glenn and a few other people, Lynn Carver even, uh, and Glenn Martin himself, to write articles for that so that it essentially was to save money. You know, the page of time was cheaper than the page of artwork and that's why I had to do it. But I just used that as an excuse. I just felt like, you know, the stuff that we could do would be as good as the fancy for the most part was doing. I believed that then and I believe it now. And uh, I think we can kind of proved that. I was very disappointed when I left after 10 years. They sort of really discontinued the idea of Conan as anything except a comic book. You know, that, that kind of disappointed me because I thought we had something to go more for about a decade here. Uh, but anyway, that's that's the whole story. Now it's all over. I just uh, wanted to have a. So we take about 10 15 minutes to take a few questions or something because I don't give speeches right now. And uh, so if anybody has a question that can be fairly simply answered, uh, that doesn't involve why didn't Jack Kirby draw a <laughs> <laughs> Actually I wouldn't have it that either, but I, I don't think I could have adjusted when having a radio. Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so over there. Uh, Roy, go ahead and talk, The comic book faculty store? Yeah. Oh, the store? No, it was just another comic book, as far as we were, you know, I mean, uh, as far as Sandler had been concerned, and it couldn't be two for the most part. Actually. I mean, I it was handled kind of differently, and it was going for a little different audience. Perhaps, you know, some of the same, we were trying to reach the same audience that liked Thor and the Hulk, but we were trying to reach it with a little different material, which I thought was related to it, but wasn't exactly the same. I mean, there are heroes that are you know no stronger than COVID, Captain America, Batman. You know, they're not all guys with superpowers. So, uh, but you no, know, we just treated it like another comic book. That's it was dumped out of the stands. And as I said this afternoon, the first issue sold quite well, and the next seven, all each one sold worse than the one before, <laughs> until Stan said uh, you got too many animals on the cover, you know. And with the next cover, we put on these uh, seven, eight foot uh, skeletons in armor. Sales went up, the next issue we had this guy, uh, the flying guy in the Garden uh, of Fear story. That sold well. I was in a short time, the son said, oh, we can actually afford John DeSantis to the book when Mary left. Uh, so it was so you know, that, that's all, but it was, just, it was just treated like another, you know, comic book store Yes, Dan, I do not recognize him. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of funny, yeah. I deliberately wanted to make Conan different in certain ways not for the sake of doing it, but it just seemed like it was a little different from The Hulk and different from, you know, the other books. So I, I did two things consciously from the very beginning, but I didn't mention the stand because then he would ask permission, and, if, you know, and <laughs> did <laughs> that he's likely to say no. But I figured by nineteen i have been working for five years. I was sort of an associate editor. He didn't even get told people long ago, just show me the first and last page of any story you write. If they're okay. I'll figure the middle is okay, too. And we got him you know, okay after that. So he wasn't paying too much attention to any of his stuff. So I decided two things. One, Stanley, if you read a Barbara especially early on, you know, Stanley liked sound effects. You know, slap, blat, you know, and then he, he lettered them himself, the letters that looked like they were artist but That was actually just in sort of, Tracy Stan's uh, very dramatic thing that he let right on the original art. But I thought, you know, I didn't like it, you know, all that kind of sound effect that uh, so I, so I decreed that there would be no non-verbal sound effects. If somebody yelled, they might, you know, or know, if an animal growled or roared, I, I'd do that. But I wasn't going to have any sound effects like bang or batak or whatever. And <laughs> the other thing was, uh, I felt like you didn't want, you, it wasn't like you didn't get inside coding at all, but I felt like somehow I didn't want thought wounds. Thought wounds were very big done. Now, but they were at that time. Stan loved time the thought groups. Everybody was thinking, oh, my darling, you know, and, and all this stuff, you know, and I must do this, I must do that. I decided nobody, if, if they were gonna figure out how photo was taken, they were either gonna do it from captions, which were a little less direct, or they were gonna do it from just seeing the pictures. So I didn't have any thought groups. That worked okay for a few months, because Stan never read the comic book
1: anymore. <laughs> <before.
0: laughs> and, so and it worked well until we started Cull, Home the conference number one a few months later. And that starts with this parade and so forth, you know, and, and it's kind of quiet because it's a big parade of colleges, the red, the red Slayers and the people coming down the street. And Stan sees that, and he pays attention to that somehow because it's a new book. And he says, you know, says this is a little quiet. He you know, says, uh, look, here's where COVID where uh, stops somebody and He swings a sword to him. Why don't you put a big splat in there? And I said, I, I don't do that. Thought. I do, do sound effects in the comic. He looked at the US you know, if I had just told him that I you know, drowned kittens for a little <laughs> And then he said something about, something about thoughts. He said, well, maybe maybe you should sure show what he's thinking. And I said, well, I don't use thought for <laughs> the words. not call it, you know, comics. Another look at the same time. He said, well, you know, all right, you know. But he, he didn't force you to do it. He respected my uh, my taste, and luckily enough, he, with his help in, in those certain ways, we turned the thing around and, and so forth and he left me. I think there's one sound effect that in my 10 year run when, when Neil oh. Adams was doing something, I think in the, uh, the adaptation of the uh, uh, Month of Man, which was Zambula, Shadows Over Zambula. And uh, I think there's something, some door opened, and Neil let a little tiny click, which I didn't see. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <it>. Every <laughs> time I look at it, it's like, hey, you stink it by there. i have been thinking of an eraser and do it <laughs> but, but it's just okay, now when I, Moments, I threw in a few sound effects because that's the way they are not uh, the editing. It was just, I just thought Conan was a little different. It was, it wasn't like I had thought it out intellectually. It was just a, that's a very good question, man. You I know, mean, I should marry
1: you." <laughs> <laughs> are
0: there any interesting stories about those what-if issues that brought Conan into the present day? Well, I only did the first one, you know, because except for, uh, as I forgot, uh, you mentioned, except for showing I think Peter Parker married James up in the past, I wouldn't have any heroes you know, any of the Marvel heroes in the book or anything like that. The later Watt that did have one who done by other people after I left. But uh, I just thought it would be kind of fun to bring them in. And I had done this story about a citadel at the center of time. And so it was just kind of fun. And so I thought, well, if Conan fell into this, he might end up in the 20th century. And uh, about a year or so earlier, they had had this uh, second blackout. I'd been around in 65 for, for the, the one then, but the one in the, seventh, in the 70s was more violent. Would kind of the world had kind of changed over those 12 years. And so I thought, well, that'd be a good time for Coven to be around. So I had him arrive in the middle of this blackout. So the, the thing I was happiest about, I guess, you know, you need something to, you know, make you feel that like you're enjoying the story and it's, you know, something special, there's some little touch you want to do. The two touches that I did that I liked was, uh, was the original story had taken place in. Uh, you know, one of the lands that probably Shem or whatever that resembles ancient Babylonian to some extent, you know, Samaria, that kind of thing. The land of ziggurats. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, and I remembered what looks like a ziggurat? And, and, of course, I lived not too many blocks away from the Guggenheim Museum in New York, which was always said, still is, to look like a, an inverted ziggurat, an upside-down ziggurat. So so when, when this, and then I had the other nice inspiration, which I decided to uh, get the artist to model this woman that Conan met when he became a uh, taxi driver when we met when he came into the 20th century after my girlfriend, then that, later Dan. Uh, so th- and John Buscema and even more so the inker, Ernie Chan, made it look just like the photograms I had sent to uh, Dan. And just to maybe sell a few extra copies, the cover that has Conan and Dan on the cover has a Star Wars poster in the back. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I've been offered money for that thing mainly because there's a Star Wars poster on top of Coden and so forth and I just thought it'd be kind of funny to show the contrast between Coden and you know the modern day thing and uh so you know, I had a lot of, lot of fun with that and my favorite scene was when Coden and Dan are sitting across from each other and, and she's saying where, she sort of, they don't understand it as a language. saying say, where, where did you come from? And she well, sort of understands enough to draw a ziggurat. And of course she's sitting across the table from him. So she sees it upside down. She says, you came from the Guggenheim Museum? You know, so they go there and they get involved and stuff like that. So it was just, but it was just a lot of fun. And I, the, the thing about that is, not that I or my fellow writers are, you know, artists are going genius thing. So that is isn't yeah. But you know, when you just start thinking about the possibilities of something, you have a good character, you have a good world, Conan created that world, uh, or Robbie Haven created that world, Conan and so forth, it presents possibilities to you. You know, you, uh, you see that and you feel like, you know, uh, you just wanna do things with that world. That was the genius of the jump from the cult story, which was certainly very good, into the world of, uh, of Conan where you, suddenly so have worlds right away and you see their names you sort of know what they are you know one of them is egypt and one of them is rome and one of them is this and one of them is that and they're all put together and mixed in a blender you know and that's the high boring age and it's uh, it's not too consistent uh somehow the trade thing doesn't exactly work out I mean, there's way too many landlocked countries and only about one ocean for about four different groups of pirates you know but still you know if you if sort of you know, you have to kind of squint a little bit, but, it's, but it works, because it, it's just, it was just an excuse for Howard to tell a good story. He never worried, I don't think, even if people were mad, he never worried that much about making it totally, uh, you know, work as a world exactly. It worked enough for his stories, that was what he cared about. But other, it's up to the, the people later, the L. camps, the Roy Thomases, the, the John Willises, the world, it's up to these other people to come along. And, Make uh order out and try to make it a consistent thing. Howard was too busy creating this stuff to uh to worry about all the little pills. As my friends used to say, sweat the small stuff. Excellent. Anything else want you more before you to yeah. yeah, you shared
1: earlier this afternoon about how you felt about working with Neil Adams recently. And but I was curious how you felt about working with Barry Smith because I really thought that y'all really like
0: you had some really close. It was it was wonderful. It was it was really wonderful. You know, the, we had a, a really good relationship, you know, until about three minutes after he left Marvel and everything, and, and he then decided, of course, he didn't actually done everything. And then, of course, he certainly did a lot, my God. He just grew wonderfully and uh, developed in all sorts of strange ways we couldn't see and were very happy with. Uh, but then he decided he was being exploited by Marvel Comics. I said, well, of course you're being exploited by Marvel Comics, we're all being exploited. <laughs> Stan <laughs> Lee, that's, that's Marvel, he doesn't own those character. We're all being exploited, you know? you cash your checks and shut up, you know? So he went on he, he, uh, he made a, a name for himself, turned out the winter director, And uh, he, uh, he just was a wonderful artist, but, you know, you know, I, just, I don't think we're destined to have lunch together ever again. But other, but other than that, I think he's just a wonderful talent. You know, the two most difficult artists I ever worked with were Neil Adams and Mary Smith, and they're two of the best. Well, you know, and, I, and, I, and just like Stanley, the best artist you ever worked for, you could, just, you could with, just Steve did and and Jack Kirby, you know how those worked <laughs> You know, without, uh, it's you know, the only thing you can be sure about in a partnership, even in an unequal one like so, where I was the editor, and so but the only thing you can ever be sure about any partnership is that each partner did ninety percent of the work. If right. <laughs> 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 you don't want to ask, um, On you work with any of the Howard properties, Was there ever any- <laughs>
1: I really would like to
0: see Jack Kirby draw a story once, but he did one drawing John and John Head and Stan had John, and did redraw draw the head, I don't know. Um, obviously, yeah, Joe Hubert over at uh, you know, DC, who's one of my, you know, in some ways, my favorite artist, I was certainly up there with Jack, you know, with his Hawkman, and his tour of the caveman, in the 50s, so to me, some like of the very best comics ever done, especially tour. And uh, I wanted to work with you. Standing a weird view once he says, you know, when all the people at DC, and there was, you know, in the, you know, Becker a lot of good artists, there's one artist I'd like to go over here. Joe Q, But I didn't have somebody else inking. Now, those of you who don't know Joe Cuba's work will know how funny it is, because 90% of Joe's work is in the ink. He does about a squiggle of pencils, then he inks. If we if we had hired as a pencil, we got nothing. But uh, that would have been some, one of the people I would most wanted to work with. If I, could have, I think he did do a tiny bit of Conan later on, as did his two sons who became professional artists. And so a few other people I wouldn't mind but i got most of the ones I really wanted to time. Of course, that's not counting all the wonderful people who have come along since then. There were some good guys after I left the 80s. There were Gary Kostwitzker, however you pronounce his name, and two or three others who did really fine work, but I never got a chance to work with them. Uh, there was somebody over there. Yes? Okay. One of the things that's different from comics in the 70s and 80s versus now is that you guys were, you were like Mark and like Marvel and Claremont were a lot more text heavy. It felt like we were trying to get as much story in as you could.
1: Was there a kind of editorial mandate to try to make it more of like an illustrative story or look at on that?
0: Or is it now, it's No, there was no mandate to make, to make things text heavy. It was a combination of two or three things. One is that Sam had gradually gotten a <laughs> little text heavy with all the thought balloons and the. Motivation you wanted to do. He certainly believed in more, you know, whatever text he put. And since he was writing the actual dialogue after the pictures had been drawn from his plot, or the artist's plot, or a combination thereof, he could put balloons anywhere that he wanted to. You know, if you, if you write a script in the advance, the artist is going to make all the balloons float to the top like they're filled with helium, you know, which is fine. But Stan would say, well, you know, I can put, put a little shark balloon in this armpit, you know, or something. And, and sometimes it sometimes would be too much. And I followed some of these bad habits in that. But at the same time, it also me sometimes to have a whole little conversation, and to, it was a more literary approach. I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. Uh, you know, it's just it's just a different approach to comics. I was also influenced by my friend Bill Kane, who of course wrote some of the very first graphic novels and illustrated books with his black mark and other things. He was another person who believed, you know, in text day that, you know, captions, you should use captions. I, I, out of the bit. I got nothing to the comics that don't have any captions. It's all just dialogue, but to me, movies are uh, comics are not movies, and I don't see any reason why not to have a narrative voice. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it, it doesn't work. And then it, but it was, it was left to the individual person and we all made, you know, different way about times have changed and now they don't use very many captions anymore. You know, I'm not even going to mention what I think of that. <laughs> but um, but it's, if it works as comics, it works as comics. So every, ge- every generation gets the comic books and deserves. You know, and, you know I, it's okay. You know, I look back at some of the stuff I did, I say I wrote too much copy and this and that and so forth. I'd like to go back and take out about, you know, 10%, somebody else would like to say 30%, you know. But it, it worked it sold comics for the most part, and you know, that's the proof of the pudding. Whatever else we were doing, whether I was trying to sell little Rory e. Howard or do Have Fun is that, you know, we were in the business of selling comic books, making our publisher happy, whether it was an individual man or a conglomerate. And uh, in order to do that, we had to, you know, we had to make a move off the stands. If we didn't do that well enough, we had to go into some other field. I had to go back to high school teaching, which I always hated. Uh, yes? Uh, did you ever have any trouble with and you're to read it point, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Conan in the comics are code. You know, that little thing that said, you know, no rurals, vampires, no exit wounds, no this, no that. And also, oh also, by the way, anything else we think isn't quite fitting, we'll cut that out too. Uh, the, the elastic claw is the whole thing. Yeah, we but I I like the guy who's a lawyer who's a charge of time, a guy named Lynn Darwin, a nice guy. Uh, Stan didn't like it, respect him much, I like it in he. Tell me, you know, since I, you know, he told me a few years later when right, I sort of sensed it. You know, I let you do a lot of stuff in Conan, I wouldn't let get by on the other comics because he felt they had a, an older audience that so was a little different sensibility. and I gave him credit for that. But, you know, sometimes we had trouble. Like when we did this story, we adapted The Frost Giant's Daughter, right? One of the uh, classic Our Conan stories. He was rejected for years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of nudity in it because was. Sedinity and various things and a, and a little other things because it was to be published in black and white in a comic that was not coded color. So then, when Barry left the first time of, of a couple there, that he left, he, uh, we wanted we both wanted to publish that in color. And of course, the comics code just threw it back at him. We had to change a lot of words. We had, not, you know, we had to cover all this. You know, the gossamer that this Frost Jacks, all of a sudden it was more like Berlin <laughs> and uh, things like that. You know, and um, sometimes they would they would uh, make me something at the end that didn't they, look like They looked like he had done something, and he wasn't going to get punished. I said, "Well, he gets caught, and thrown in prison." The next issue, he says, "Yeah, but the reader won't know that, so you got to say it again." He's going to get caught and thrown in prison. <laughs> so I had to do that. And once when he behead, when that he to the house and he has a priest, the priest of um, wherever, whatever priest he heads, we couldn't quite show that. So, Gary came up as a very interesting thing of like showing the head. And this guy was very carpeted, so if he was lying there, you know, you just see his body, but well, you didn't see the body. So, it was sort of the way of saying he was beheaded, you know, without showing it you see the past. But my favorite thing was uh, was, was a color thing. In the Garden of Fear story, uh, the, this winged monster carries this, uh, you know, one of the native characters before Conan comes in and drops him from a great height into this. These flowers, these white, this field of white flowers. I don't remember if this is in Howard's story exactly or not. Uh, It probably is. But anyway, the thing was that the the flowers obviously kind of devoured. So, and of course, you know, the code was not really on devouring. So, you know, and blood and everything. So, when I I talked to the uh, color a woman named Edie Gold, who was going to Barrie at the time, uh, had helped arrange for me to get back in the country. I said, look, here's, here's three panels of these. It's like the same shot three times in a row that Barry had drawn that I walked walking about the draw. I said just don't I didn't put us hard and arrow, we would write little uh, color notes in the margins, which would then you know not be printed. But the code would have and it would say, you know, color this white. And I wanted to show it. I was just to white, to pink, to red, in the three panels showing that it was taking these guys' blood and flowers this flowers and plants that turned from white to red over the three panels but I, I said I knew if I put that in the color mode the code's going to say you can't do that it's too you know it's too much violence so I said so there was no color I said just color it that way because the code saw the books in black and white they didn't see the color <laughs> it came out so and I don't know if they ever but my, I gotta say my favorite because this is the a little more of it's funny. When we did the first issue with the Queen of the Black Coast, well, of course, we couldn't have the movie from the way stuff or anything like that. We have to make a few concessions. But at the end of the story, uh, she does this dance for Cody, remember? She wants to, she's in, and she says, uh, she's going to do the Mating Dance of Belief. That's the exact phrase. That was the first thing. Uh, Lenny calls back and calls me up and says, uh, well, we can't have this. So I said, what, what do you mean? He said, we can't call it the maybe dance of belief." I said, well, you know, I said, look, we've got to get the book out. I said, what would you suggest? He said, how about the love dance of belief?" Well, that's pretty specific. I said, well, then, all right, we'll, we'll do that. Said, but can I ask you a question? What, what is, why, why is love dance okay, maybe not dance not okay? He so, said, well, you know, love can be anything, but maybe is very specific. <laughs> so okay, alright. Uh, and then the other thing is on the last page, she crawls toward him looking past her at Conan. She's crawling toward him as she collapses, you know, seductively at the end of the, the dance. She crawls toward him, he's sitting there, and she crawls in the drawing with you know, John just doing drawing, and she's sort of like in between his legs. He used to get one side, the other legs the other says, You gotta get rid of one of the legs <laughs> you know, because she had to get in between his legs. So we so we just erased it and put both plates on. side so you saw like side saddle or something. But the nice thing is, since that book was being done so late, we still had the original art for the uh, for the original panel. So it was reprinted a couple of years later in black and white, and later every time in color. It's always the original version. We probably left the love dance and believe, lead, but the, but those were the kind of things we did to uh, you know to, to get past the code. We didn't have too many problems, but when they did, they could be enormous because you know was not just a yeah you know, it wasn't like uh, a fantastic four or something like that. Anyway, unless on there's one aspect i will i let you All right, well thank you very
1: much. <laughs>